1 John chapter 2, 15 to 27. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you did not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now this morning, I'd like to talk about left behind. And given the passage that we just had read and assuming that your memory of evangelical apocalyptic literature stretches back far enough. Uh, you might think that I'm talking about the 1995 novel um, written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins uh, that spawned the film starring Kirk Cameron. I'm not. I'm talking about us, um, Christians, the relic of a bygone age, a meeting in this building, um, another relic of a bygone age, a left behind. And we have been left behind, haven't we? And some of us will be acutely aware of that on the individual level, left behind by individuals who, who used to walk closely with the Lord Jesus but no longer do. I'm speaking for myself. Um, two of the four friends who were the most influential in keeping me Christian when I was 17, 18 years old are no longer following the Lord Jesus. We've been left behind by our denomination. And there's no doubt that we are the recalcitrant ones. If you haven't worked that out yet... We are. I mean, in 1963, a bishop, the Bishop of Woolwich, Don Robinson, published a, a book called Honest to God. It was a clarion call in the 1960s for Christians to kind of wake up and to get with the time, to modernize and to come up with a conception of Christianity that actually lived with the modern world as it was in 1963, 60 years ago. And we still haven't got with the program. We've been left behind by our denomination. We've been left behind by our culture. Uh, the sociologist, Callum Brown, he names that same year, 1963, 
um, as the year that Christian Britain died. Well, whenever Christian Britain died, um, sort of progressive secularism won, didn't it? Um, when Barack Obama swept to the presidency and swept everything else across the Western world away with him. We have been left behind. Evangelical, Bible-believing Christians are on the wrong side of history. And there's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks about the late Queen and about her Christian faith. And of course, we want to celebrate her. But for all that we do want to celebrate her faith, there is a slight sense that in this respect, at least, she was King Canute, sitting on the beach, vainly trying to command the tides of secularism not to come in. Um, I read one article that described her as the last Christian monarch, not the last Christian monarch of the UK, the last Christian monarch of the entire Western world. Her dignity, her, her public service are commendable, but her faith, well, the world has moved on. And the country's a very different place from the way that it was in 1952. She and we with her have been left behind. And it is unsettling, isn't it? There is a certain kind of courage required to be an early adopter, uh, to be on the cutting edge, to believe something before the world has cottoned on. But there's nothing brave or courageous about being behind the curve. And frankly, it just looks like inertia. So let me ask, what does God have to say to those who have been left behind by individuals, by denominations, by the entire culture. It's our conviction here at St. Helens that if you want to know what God has to say to you, there's a very simple way to do that. You need to take this book and read it. And as you'll know, over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through 1 John, John's um, first epistle. And John writes um, as a witness, an authorized witness of the Lord Jesus, to a church that have been left behind. And here's a church that had believed John's extraordinary witness to the life that comes through Jesus Christ. But some of their number have moved on. They've repented of their youthful naivety in believing such a ridiculous message. Some of their number have actually started to write and to teach against them, the zeal of a convert turned apostate, vlogging perhaps against their former friends. And there's just a hint, actually, as you get to chapter three of this letter, that some of their number are backing up that hostility to their former friends with force. And it's deeply unsettling. And John's aim in this letter is to settle these Christians down. Now, 24 times in the book, he uses the same word, remain, remain, abide, just stay. You have believed the right thing, you have joined the right family, actually you have come to share in eternal life. Um, I don't know whether there are any visitors with us here this morning, there certainly will be at the 10.30. Um, did you know that if you're visiting, that that is what is available to you here, not just here, but in any authentically Christian gathering? As you come in, you are coming into contact with eternal life. John's big purpose is that they stay. And the aim of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through to 4, verse 6, it's a new section in the letter. And the aim of this section 
um, is to name those who have left the Christian family behind rightly. They think that they are enlightened, ethical, obedient, advanced. But John wants those he's writing to to realize that those who have left them behind and moved on from their faith in the Lord Jesus aren't really any of those things. In fact, what they are is just the world. Turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 5. This is where the whole section is going, and this is where we're going to arrive in a few weeks' time. Verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. These people who've left you behind, they're just one more expression of the same old anti-gods, benighted world that has been with us from the beginning. And so what John's going to do over the next three weeks is to hold up their behavior against the, the big theological categories that describe the world in the Bible. And he wants us to recognize that those who have moved on, whether it's individuals or a denomination or a whole culture, he wants us to recognize them for what they are. It's a match. They're the world. Anyway, enough context. Uh, let's start, see where John starts. Uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, let's dive in. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the, eyes, of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world. It's very striking. I mean, it is the first direct imperative in this entire letter. Uh, we often call John the apostle of love. But the very first thing that he directly commands them to do is not to love something. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. It's worth taking a moment to define what John does and doesn't mean. And he certainly isn't talking about creation, as though he was saying, do not love mountains, or sunsets, or butterflies. Neither is it a wholesale rejection of human culture, as though the Bible is necessarily anti-Shakespeare, anti-Mozart, anti-Keats. Actually, that's all very pompous, isn't it? I can't remember the last time I listened to Mozart. If this helps you, anti-Canto pop and Korean drama, whatever it is. When John talks about the world here, he means the world as it has been organized ever since human beings first lifted their hand up against God's. Human society organized in rebellion against God's. Actually, the next verse gives us a flavor, verse 16, for all that is in the world namely the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's a picture of a grasping culture, grabbing onto what you desire, snatching the things that your eyes see, holding tightly, high-handedly to this mortal life. The world is, is humanity that saw the opportunity to grab the crown from God and took it and now jealously is curved in, proudly guarding it. Of course, it's possible for our songs and our dances and our films to be an expression of that culture 
and many of them are, but there is nothing inherent to singing or painting or filmmaking that means they have to be. When John says, do not love the world, he means do not love that way of being human in proud independence from God. And the first command that John gives to these Christians who feel like they've been left behind, the first thing he says as he turns to address the question of those who have left them is this, resolve this, settle this. Before I tell you about them, for yourselves, resolve this, that you do not love the world. It has to be said that this is not very 21st century, is it? Uh, We live in in a culture that increasingly thinks that love in all its forms is good. I was at the Tate Modern with my kids yesterday, um, just so we could run up and down the ramp, not not to see anything useful. But whilst I was there, uh, we saw that thing. There's a big love is good um, sort of sculpture, isn't there, on the ground floor of the Tate Modern. And that is the culture. Uh, Love is good. Hate is bad. If you can attach the word love to anything, it must be a blessing. It must be a human life, a human right. If you are once dismissed as a hater, then really you've got nothing more that you could possibly say. But of course, the problem with that kind of analysis is that it is possible to love the wrong thing. John's analysis is much more subtle. The question is not, do you love or do you hate? The question is, what do you love? And as its necessary corollary, what do you hate? Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. There is a choice, two loves, The great Christian theologian Augustine put it like this, two cities have been founded, formed by two loves. The earthly city has been formed by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly city has been formed by the love of God, even to a contempt of self. It's not a question of whether you love or whether you hate. What do you love? What do you hate? And John says, do not love the world. The plain fact is that there is much about human society that it is right to hate. Injustice, exploitation, greed, violence. None of us think that we should love those things. John just goes a step further to the roots. They are all an expression of the world, human society, organized as it is in proud rebellion against God. And so as he addresses those who've been left behind, as he reassures them, he starts by putting a stake in the ground. If you are going to get this moment right, if you're going to understand what's going on here and do the right thing in this situation, you need to start with a decision. Not first of all about what you do love, but about what you don't. Do not love the world. Do you know, I think this might be very good for us here this morning. 
are good for those of us who do not yet know the Lord Jesus. It's at least worth asking the question, isn't it? Is human society, organised as it is, shot through with pride, snatching, contempt of God and contempt of others, is that something you really want to love? Could it be that the love of the Father, could it be that the love of the Father that reaches out and gives, could it be that the love of the Father that reaches out and gives eternal life is just better? It's good for all of us. And I'm particularly aware, I'm serving as I do at the 10.30, that over there, there'll be 70 or 80 students um, joining us in London. I guess there are some new students here this morning as well. Um, and a good number um, of those who will be over the road will be new with us at St. Helens. Um, a good number of them will be new to London. Um, and they are about to make all sorts of decisions about how they want to order their lives. And which family um, do you think that they should belong to? now that they're away from their biological family? And who should they listen to now that they're away from those that they have been listening to? And what about you, if you're in the same position? Now, some of those decisions are quite difficult, aren't they? And they require a lot of wisdom. And let's face it, you're probably going to make a lot of mistakes. And I know that I certainly did when I was a student. But if John had one piece of advice for you this morning... Um, something to set the overall trajectory, I think he'd start with this. Don't start with what you will do whilst you're here in London. Don't even start with what you think you're going to think whilst you're here in London. Start with what you love and start with what you won't love. Decide now. Pride, coveting, arrogance, grasping, living only for this fleeting life, those are things that you do not love. You love the Father. Do not love the world. But of course, the reason for starting here is that John knows that if you have decided in advance that you will not love the world, all the appeal of the departed's voice will disappear. And after all, as we just said at the beginning, 1 John chapter 4, verse 5, they speak from the world. If you don't love the world, then they're not going to persuade you, are they? And so what John does now, and will continue to do through the next chapter and a half of this letter, is to take the big theological categories that in the Bible describe the world, lawlessness, murder, deceit, idolatry, and he holds them up against those who have departed from this community. Look, he says, it's a match. If you don't love the world, then you won't be unsettled by them. However, they might self-report, if you pull back the mask, it's just the world. Now, John is going to be quite shocking, actually, over this next chapter and a half. And he starts, I think, with what might be his most shocking label of all. First of all, pull back the mask, and what do you see? Well, those who've departed are antichrist. And here's the first reason those who've departed are part of the world. They're antichrist. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. Children, he says, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
Now, at this point, you might choke. I mean, that really is preposterous. How can you possibly go about labeling people antichrist? Actually, there is quite a fine theological tradition of doing just that. Um, Here's what one commentary has to say. Um, Nero and the Pope and Peter the Great and Hitler and Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and John F. Kennedy and Prince, now King Charles, and Ronald Reagan um, and any number of a hundred other historical figures have all been identified as the Antichrist. And he goes on to say that it is ridiculous and it makes Christians look embarrassing. And you might think it is embarrassing. And you might think, how could John be doing that now? Of course, when we go around labeling pieces of Antichrist, what we imagine is some sort of evil genius, um, a blue-eyed sociopath um, with immaculate self-presentation and secretly breathing fire, probably literally. And you know, I have a friend who, when he was growing up, uh, wondered whether he might actually be the Antichrist, which, when you think about it, is quite some gumption. And if you want to know the sort of thing that I'm talking about, go and watch the Left Behind film with Kirk Cameron in it. But John's point is not that those who have left this community and their faith in Jesus secretly have horns and pitchforks and a five-pointed star tattooed on their chest. He does want you to connect their departure to that image of ultimate satanic rebellion. He does want you to connect those things together, but that's not what they literally are. No, the reason that they are antichrist is because they're anti-Christ. Just look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. You don't have to breathe fire to express the spirit of antichrist. You don't even have to listen to thrash metal or own a system of a down hoodie. You just have to set yourself against God and what he has done in the Lord Jesus. In fact, as you read through the paragraph, they're anti-Christ in at least three different ways. First of all, they're anti-apostle, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain plain that they all were not of us. And the us that that John is talking about here is us apostles, um, us eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus. Uh, John speaks as one of those who have seen and who testify to the extraordinary thing. The eternal life of God has burst into the world. It has broken through death into resurrection life. The Son has come, and John saw him with his own eyes, and he touched him, and he bears witness to him. But then here is a group that that listened to John and for a moment believed him, and have then moved on and decided that they've got nothing more to learn from John, who saw the eternal life of God burst into this world with his own eyes, and they've got nothing to learn from him. They went out from us, They were not of us. If you're against the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus, you are anti-Christ. And secondly, they are anti-Christ himself, verse 22. 
Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. They used to confess faith in Jesus. They no longer do. They're denying him. But to turn against Jesus is to be Antichrist. Obviously, when you think about it. And thirdly, they are anti-Christs. I find that quite hard to say, um, anti-Christs. But that's the point of all the anointing language in the passage. Did you notice it? Uh, look at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Um, or again, verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, when John talks about the anointing here, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and who dwells in every Christian heart. And actually, he wants us to, to see that we have new hearts that are taught by God as members of the new covenant and the covenant promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. That's what he's talking about. But the choice of word is deliberate. Why does he call it the anointing? Well, the word for Christ in Greek, you might know this, just means the anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. It's in the name. But through Christ, you, his people, have also been anointed anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so here is a third way in which those who have left are antichrist. They've turned against their Christian brothers and sisters. They are anti the anointed one in capital letters, and they're anti all those whom the Lord has anointed. They're antichrist because they're anti-apostle. They're antichrist because they're anti-Jesus. They're antichrist because they're anti-Christian. And so John wants us to name them properly. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They are the Antichrist that you heard was coming and is now here. Imagine how that conversation would go down. Why are they left? They're Antichrist. But that is preposterous. How could you possibly call us Antichrist? Well, John might say, if the shoe fits... I wonder how they describe themselves, and perhaps as grown-ups who have put their childish enthusiasm for Jesus behind them, perhaps as enlightened and those who have moved on from the superstition of the past, honest, relentless seekers after truth, those who have followed a healthy scepticism to its inevitable logical conclusion, perhaps indeed as obedient sons, who have seen the error of their former filial impiety and who have turned back to the religion of their ancestors. How you name, well, how you name things matters, doesn't it? How you name moving on from Jesus matters. Immanuel Kant labelled it enlightenment. Richard Dawkins, he called himself and those who have moved on from the Christian God Rights. Our current culture loves to see itself as progressive. 
uh, when the Christian pastor Joshua Harris posted on Instagram to say that his Christian faith was undergoing a deconstruction, how you name things matters, doesn't it? Undergoing a deconstruction. He posted it with a photo of himself looking out into a sunlit wilderness, adventurous, hopeful, brave. And of course, if you think that, the implication is that those who remain are cowardly, hopeless, timid, regressive, reactionary, benighted, hateful, disobedient, dim. And if that is what you think it means to remain, well, you certainly wouldn't want to join us and you wouldn't want to remain very long, would you? You would not want to be left behind. Well, the Apostle John wants us to name things rightly. Those who have moved away from Jesus, the apostolic Jesus, whether individuals or denominations, or indeed entire cultures, whatever they may say, what they are really displaying is just the spirit of Antichrist. It is just the world. He's not trying to be sensational here. He just wants us to see things straight. There's nothing really to see here. There's nothing new here. Or if it is new, it's just a new level of the same. It's just the same old story. Another expression of the world, that ancient rebellion, that ever since the beginning has been doomed to fail. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You know the truth. You have the Spirit. You have new covenant hearts. You don't need teachers, not least them. You have eternal life. So stay. You know, the tragedy of the whole thing in 1 John is what the departed have moved on from. And it seems to me that this is a good place for us to end this morning. Uh, why should we be content to be left behind? Uh, why might you like to join us if you're not yet a Christian? Well, the John who wrote this letter, he really did see something incredible with his own eyes. The eternal life, the, the light and life of God bursting into the darkness of this world. He saw it, and, and because he saw it, it gave him a message. He proclaimed a word of light in the darkness, a word of forgiveness to those who need it, and we all need it, don't we? A word of victory over evil, a word of love, not the twisted love of this world, but the eternal love, the giving love of the Father, a word of joy, and fellowship, and inclusion in the very family of God. In a word, he proclaimed life, life that starts now, and life that goes on forever. A day will come 
when our current culture will long since have been forgotten. The world is passing away along with its desires, but something will remain. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so John says, do not love the world. What a stupid thing to do. And do not let those who speak from the world deceive you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much that because of the Lord Jesus and the gift of your Spirit, every one of us who knows the Lord Jesus Christ has fellowship with you, has the joy of being part of your family, shares in eternal life. We know the forgiveness of our sins and the hope, a hope that will abide forever. And we want to pray that you'd help us not to be misled or deceived by anyone, whether it's individuals or religious leaders, or even entire cultures that move away from what you have said in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would abide, and we pray that you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.